0: Where do you find yourself in this parable? Where do you find yourself in this parable that we just heard about the the landowner and the three slaves? Which of the four characters do you identify with the most? I'm going to guess that most of you are like me. I'm going to guess that most of us identify with the the third slave who buried his talent in the ground. And if you identify with the third slave, or even if you don't, then tell me how this parable makes you feel. Again, if you were like me, then this parable makes you feel anxious and nervous. For me, this parable taps into the anxiety I feel about all of the ways that I have not lived into my potential. My response to this parable is to feel uneasy about some of the things that I have done, but also especially about those things that I have left undone. My response to this parable is to feel troubled and apprehensive that I have not risked enough, that I have not ventured enough for God's sake. This feeling of unease is especially true if I hear this parable as allegorical, which is to say if I start to associate certain characters of the story with figures in my own life and my own experience. So, if I most see myself as that third slave, then by allegory, who is the landowner? Who is the master? Well, the master is Jesus, right? It's God. Jesus, who seemingly has been gone for lo these many years, but who will return. And in the light of this parable, when Jesus returns... How is Jesus going to see me? Well, according to this this natural interpretation of the parable, if I am the third slave and Jesus is the master, then I'm afraid I've got some wailing and gnashing of teeth waiting for me in the outer darkness. But I want to venture to say that I do not think that an allegorical reading of this parable is the most helpful way to interpret it. And I say this because I do not see God or Jesus in this landowner. God is not an absentee master who profits off his servants and who punishes those who don't produce. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is called Emmanuel, literally God with us. The final scene of this gospel is the resurrected Jesus declaring to the disciples, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And as such, even as we wait for the second coming, the culmination of this present age, Jesus is not absent. For indeed, Jesus reveals to us that God is present with us, even in the most difficult and difficult of moments. And as an aside, I I have trouble with uh, interpreting this figure as God, because Jesus tells us that the last will be first, and the first shall be last. But here he says that those who have will get more, and those who have nothing will lose even that pittance. It frankly doesn't sound like the kingdom of God to me. It sounds like our current economic order. If we read this parable as an allegory, then it sounds like what we have to wait for is more of the same. And then, of course, if we're reading it in this allegorical way, then the greatest irony is that if we read this parable as an allegory for God and our relationship to God, then it, then it seems like it will inevitably produce the very same anxiety that this parable wants to warn us against. I mean, wouldn't the lesson of this parable be to use your talents or else watch out? God's going to get you. But if that is so, then wouldn't that produce the fear that might cause you to bury your talent and your head in the sand? So like I said, I think reading this parable as an allegory is not particularly helpful. But if it's not an allegory it's not an allegory for our relationship with God, then what is it? What is Jesus telling those, those first disciples? What indeed is Jesus telling us? Is there something for us here? Or should we just try to ignore this parable, turn the page, and get on with other things? Well, you might be surprised to hear that I think there actually is something for us here when we stop reading this parable as an allegory and instead we read this parable as an important dynamic for our life with God and with one another. So let's take a step back. Let's look at the big picture. Engage with this parable. Look at it again. What do you see? Don't assign roles. Don't try to place the characters into categories. Just think about the dynamics of what you see. What I see is three individuals who respond to a challenge and to an opportunity. Two of these folks act in hope. They go out and trade with the talents that they've been given, and then amazing things happen. The third, however, acts out of fear, and his fears become a reality. Notice how he knows his master is harsh, and so he acts out of that fear about the harshness of his master And then he comes into direct contact with that harshness. His fears are realized. They become a reality. There is in this parable, then, this dynamic of anxiety and hope. What do we act out of? The theologian Jürgen Moltmann once wrote something that speaks to this dynamic. Moltmann wrote, What anxiety and hope have in common is a sense of what is possible. In anxiety, we anticipate possible danger. In hope, we anticipate possible deliverance. What I see here in this parable is that this dynamic in play, this dynamic between hope or anxiety, risk or paralysis. And in this parable, I see Jesus inviting us to see this dynamic deeply at play in the center of our lives. I think that this parable invites us to reflect on how we approach our lives. It asks us to find ourselves in this dynamic of hope and anxiety. And so, if you are like me and you find yourself associating most closely with the fearful slave, what does that say to you? For me, I think this parable asks me to wonder about all the arenas in my life where I am operating out of fear and not out of hope. It it invites me to realize how fear can dominate my actions and blind me to possibilities. And as such, this parable also invites me to step out in hope and to risk acting in trust and in faith in God. This parable begs me to wonder where I am being invited to surrender my need to control and instead to trust in God. Here, Jesus commends to us the possibilities that exist when we act in hope, All the while, he reminds us that fear can be one of our cruelest of enemies. And what's more, Jesus invites us to see that whether we act out of hope or out of fear, these actions inevitably involve God. I think it is no mistake that Jesus tells his disciples this parable when he does. Jesus tells his disciples this parable as his crucifixion approaches. His time is short. And as his cru- crucifixion approaches, Jesus knows that his disciples will soon be scattered out of fear. In contrast, Jesus approaches his own end with a pregnant sense of hope. Even as he longs for the cup to be taken from him, Jesus places his trust in God and God's deliverance. Not my will, but your will be done is what Jesus says to God in prayer. This stance of openness in hope is how Jesus faces his upcoming passion and death. But the good news that emerges out of that death is that the disciples scattering in fear is not the last word. The good news that emerges out of Jesus' crucifixion and death is that even though the disciples scatter in fear, they are regathered in hope. The risen Jesus comes to them and invites them back into fellowship. As Christ moves through death into new resurrection life, the disciples move from fear to courage, from anxiety to hope. as much As the resurrection is a miracle of the triumph of life over death, it is also a miracle of the triumph of hope over anxiety. The resurrection proclaims that since sin and death have been trampled down, we truly have nothing to fear. We can now live in hope and trust in God. Come what may. God brings new life out of death. And God creates amazing realities out of acts of hope. This is not a simple parable. It's not an easy parable to swallow. But I think it does invite us to live our lives as acts of hope. It invites us to risk trusting that God will do amazing things through our risk. And so do not succumb to fear. Live in hope. For indeed, God is God of hope. Amen.